Section 5 of A Compendious History of English Literature and of the English Language, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Grant Hicks. A Compendious History of English Literature and of the English Language, Volume 1. By George L. Craik. Chapter 1, Part 5. The English Language. The earliest historically known fact with regard to the English language is that it was the language generally, if not universally, spoken by the barbaric invaders, apparently for the greater part of one race or blood, though of different tribes, who, upon the breaking up of the empire of the West in the fifth century, came over in successive throngs from the opposite continent, and after a protracted struggle acquired the possession and dominion of the principal portion of the province of Britain. They are stated to have consisted chiefly of Angles and Saxons, but although it is usual to designate them rather by the general denomination of the Saxons, or Anglo-Saxons, it is probable that the Saxons were in reality only a section of the Angles. The Angles, of which term our modern English is only another form, appears to have been always recognized among themselves as the proper national appellation. They both concurred, Angles and Saxons alike, after their establishment in Britain, in calling their common country Angleland, or England, and their common language English, that is, the language of the Angles, as there can be little doubt it had been called from the time when it first became known as a distinct form of human speech. This English language, since become so famous, is ordinarily regarded as belonging to the Low Germanic or Middle group of the Gothic tongues. That is to say, it is classed with the Dutch and the Flemish, and the dialects generally of the more northern and low-lying part of what was anciently called Germany, under which name were included the countries that we call Holland and the Netherlands, as well as that to which it is now more especially confined. It appears to have been from this middle region, lying directly opposite to Britain, that the Angles and Saxons and other tribes by whom the English language was brought over to that island chiefly came. At any rate, they certainly did not come from the more elevated region of southern Germany. Nor does the language present the distinguishing characteristics of a high Germanic tongue. What is now called the German language, therefore, though of the same Gothic stock, belongs to a different branch from our own. We are only distantly related to the Germans proper, or the race among whom the language and literature now known as the German have originated and grown up. We are, at least in respect of language, more nearly akin to the Dutch and the Flemings than we are to the Germans. It may even be doubted if the English language ought not to be regarded as having more of a Scandinavian than of a purely Germanic character, as, in other words, more nearly resembling the Danish or Swedish than the modern German. The invading bands by whom it was originally brought over to Britain in the 5th and 6th centuries were in all probability drawn in great part from the Scandinavian countries. At a later date, too, the population of England was directly recruited from Denmark and the other regions around the Baltic to a large extent. From about the middle of the ninth century, the population of all the eastern and northern parts of the country was as much Danish as English. And soon after the beginning of the eleventh century, the sovereignty was acquired by the Danes. The English language, although reckoned among modern languages, is already of respectable antiquity. In one sense, indeed, all languages may be held to be equally ancient for we can in no case get at the beginning of a language any more than we can get at the beginning of a lineage. Each is merely the continuation of a preceding one, from which it cannot be separated in any case except by a purely arbitrary mark of distinction. Take two portions of the line at some distance from one another, and they may be very unlike. 
Yet the change which has transformed the one into the other, or produced the one out of the other, has been, even when most active, so gradual, so perfectly free always from anything that can be called a convulsion or a catastrophe, so merely a process of growth, however varying in its rate of rapidity, that there is no precise point at which it can be said to have begun. This is undoubtedly the way in which all languages have come into existence. They have all thus grown out of older forms of speech. None of them have been manufactured or invented. It would seem that human skill could as soon invent a tree as invent a language. The one as well as the other is essentially a natural production. But, taking a particular language to mean what has always borne the same name, or been spoken by the same nation or race, which is the common or conventional understanding of the matter, the English may claim to be older than the great majority of the tongues now in use throughout Europe. The Basque, perhaps, and the various Celtic dialects might take precedence of it, but hardly any others. No one of the still-spoken Germanic or Scandinavian languages could make out a distinct proof of its continuous existence from an equally early date and the Romance tongues, the Italian, the Spanish, the French, are all, recognized as such, confessedly of much later origin. The English language is recorded to have been known by that name, and to have been the national speech of the same race, at least since the middle of the fifth century. It was then, as we have seen, that the first settlers by whom it was spoken established themselves in the country of which their descendants have ever since retained possession. Call them either Angles, that is, English, or Saxons, it makes no difference. It is clear that whether or no the several divisions of the invaders were all of one blood, all branches of a common stock, they spoke all substantially the same language, the proper name of which, as has been stated, was the Anglish, or English, as England, or Angleland, the land of the Angles, was the name which the country received from its new occupants, and these names of England and English, the country and the language, have each retained ever since. Nor can it be questioned that the same tongue was spoken by the same race or races long before their settlement in Britain. The Angles figure as one of the nations occupying the forest land of Germany in the picture of that country sketched by Tacitus in the first century of our era. The most distinct and satisfactory record, however, of a language is afforded by what exists of it in a written form. In applying this test or measure of antiquity, the reasonable rule would seem to be that wherever we have the clear beginning or end of a distinct body or continuous series of literary remains, there we have the beginning or end of a language. Thus, of what is called the Mesogothic, we have no written remains of later date than the 4th century, or at any rate than the 6th, if we reckon from what is probably the true age of the transcripts which we actually possess. And accordingly, we hold the Mesogothic to be a language which has passed away and perished, notwithstanding that there may be some other language or languages still existing, of which there is good reason to look upon it as having been the progenitor. But of the English language we have a continuous succession of written remains since the seventh century at least. That is to say, we have an array of specimens of it from that date, such as that no two of them standing next to one another in the order of time could possibly be pronounced to belong to different languages, but only at most to two successive stages of the same language. They afford us a record or representation of the language in which there is no gap. This cannot be said of any other existing European tongue for nearly so great a length of time, unless we may accept the two principal Celtic tongues, the Welsh and the Irish. The movement of the language, however, during this extended existence has been immense. No language ever ceases to move until it becomes what is called dead, which term, although commonly understood to mean merely that the language has ceased to be spoken, really signifies, here as elsewhere, 
that the life has gone out of it, which is indeed the unfailing accompaniment of its ceasing to be used as an oral medium of communication. It cannot grow after that, even if it should still continue to a certain extent to be used in writing, as has been the case with the Sanskrit in the East and the Latin in the West, except perhaps as the hair and the nails are said sometimes to grow after the animal body is dead. It is only speaking that keeps a language alive. Writing alone will not do it. That has no more than a conservative function and effect. The progressive power, the element of fermentation and change, in a language is its vocal utterance. We shall find that the English language, moving now faster, now slower, throughout the twelve or thirteen centuries over which our knowledge of it extends, although it has never been all at once or suddenly converted from one form into another, which is what the nature of human speech forbids, has yet, within that space, undergone at least two complete revolutions, or, in other words, presents itself to us in three distinct forms. End of section 5